when I was thinking, I said, I'm done with John at the end of the year. I said, where, where do I go from here? And as I was praying about it, my mind was uh, drawn to Second Corinthians. And I sensed the Lord's leading to begin to, to preach this truth into the lives of our lives here at, the, at this very difficult time. So uh, let's, let's look at this first of all. We're going to read chapter 1 here uh, this morning for the scripture reading, although the, the text of my message is actually from verses 3 through, through 11. And if you would stand please with me for the reading of scripture. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. That's the Roman province where Corinth was located. Grace be to you, uh, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to, to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's in Ephesus, actually, the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Listen to that. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Talk about despair. <laughs> but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we get into this, we need to uh, get a little background. And here we have uh, Paul 
uh, laboring in, on his second missionary journey in Macedonia and the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and briefly in Athens, and then he travels to Corinth. His first visit to Corinth is recorded in, cha in Acts chapter 18. He went there all alone. But while he was there, he located a Jew whose name was Aquila, his wife's name Priscilla, they had been recently evicted from Rome under the edict of the emperor Claudius. And he was a tent maker, so was the apostle Paul. So as a result, they, came, they, they got together and, and Aquila was also a believer in Jesus Christ. So the two worked together to earn a, a living. And while they're working together, the apostle Paul then is... Uh, going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day to preach the gospel there and to minister at that time. Not long after Paul came to settle in Corinth, he was joined by Silas and Timothy. And then his efforts to preach the gospel there were vigorously opposed. The Jews resisted him earnestly resisted him so to even to the extent that the apostle paul was forced to declare there in acts chapter 18 verse 6 your blood be upon your own heads i am innocent from now on i will go to the gentiles so he went to a house that was joining a hard fast or joining there the synagogue in corinth and he began preaching in this house church, ministering in this house church. He was there for about a year and a half, preaching the gospel. But the resistance of the Jews didn't stop, and probably because one of their chief, one of the chief uh, leaders in the synagogue also became a believer and was following the Apostle Paul. This, this uh, opposition was so hard, intense there and I'm sure it was very discouraging to the Apostle Paul. And one night the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And according to Acts 18 verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have, and notice this, <clears throat> for I have many in this city who are my people. What an encouragement. Don't, don't, don't be discouraged, Paul. I have a lot of people in this city. And we need the gospel to bring them out. So he continued there, as I said, for a year and six months. But, faith, but continue to face extensive hostility. And that hostility not, didn't even, it wasn't even confined to the Jews. It became evident that the church itself became a problem, <clears throat> as, as we have uh, noted here, and will note here. Paul left Corinth after about a year and six months to travel on an extended tour of the area, and then he eventually settled in Ephesus, and that's when he writes this letter. And as we stated earlier, there he had met Aquila when when Aquila was there 
in uh, Corinth, he found a, a Jewish man who was a convert of the of the uh, of John the Baptist, who was preaching and con- and uh, telling the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, and this but this man's theology was a little imperfect. So Aquila and Priscilla took him into their home and and began to teach him uh, fully the gospel, and then this man went to Corinth, where he powerfully refuted the Jews in public and showing them from the scriptures that that Christ was that the Christ was Jesus that's uh, acts 18:28 let, let, let me just describe you know Ron was talking about the the harlot uh, the city of Corinth illustrates this harlot varies definitely it was a major city in the Roman province of Achaia on the Adriatic Sea. In fact, it had two ports on either side of the city that uh, made the city very, very prosperous. It was a very prosperous pagan city filled with luxury and immorality. A common expression of the day was to live like a Corinthian. which meant to live in lasciviousness, (laughs) luxury in lasciviousness. Nevertheless, God had many people in that city. And he established the church there. God did it. It's, in fact, notice in verse 1, it says, to the church of God. That is at Corinth. And this, the church here is not a building. It's the people. Like Calvary Baptist is not a building located on 3rd Street. It's a people who are assembled. That is the church. And as noted above here, the gospel was met then by fierce and vigorous opposition from the Jews and also from false teachers among the Christians. And it battled internal issues of prideful division, toleration of immorality, lack of church discipline, lawsuits against brothers, I mean civil lawsuits, that Christians were waging against each other. Can you imagine that? Pressures to compromise with idolatry. Unsubmissive women. The abuse of the Lord's table. The abuse of spiritual gifts. Denial of Christ's resurrection. Persecution. Lots of problems. Lots of problems. I've often thought, I'm glad I didn't pastor the church at Corinth. <laughs> After Paul's first letter, the church then was was influenced by false teachers. And I believe that after Paul left, there was a group of Jews that came down from Jerusalem to preach that circumcision was absolutely necessary to salvation. We read a little about that in the book of Acts. 
Paul doesn't really describe them so much in Second Corinthians. So the the opposition that that is faced in Second Corinthians was not so much from from the Jew, Jewish opposition as it was from these false teachers who claimed to be representing the apostle Peter, and they and they tried to bring division into Christianity by arguing that Paul was really a reprobate. That he was teaching against the law. Where, where, while Peter and those who followed Peter were preaching the Old Testament truth. Dressed up now in uh, Christian garb. So this is what Paul's up against. And they stirred the people up against Paul. So really what 2 Corinthians is, is Paul's defense of his own apostolic calling. They accused him of being fickle, proud, unimpressive, both in appearance and preaching. They said, when he comes to us, he's not much to look at, and he sure isn't much to listen to. But when he's away from us, his letters are weighty and powerful. They accused him of being dishonest and unqualified for the office of apostleship. Paul sent Titus then to Corinth to deal with these matters. And I believe he sent a letter along with with, uh, Titus, a very sharp letter that we do not have, but I'll explain that in a minute. But he comforted the apostle Paul with his report of their change of heart, that is the majority, the majority change of heart. And so then in gratitude, Paul writes this letter in which he then expresses uh, his appreciation for the repentance of the majority, but also to appeal to the rebellious minority to accept his authority. So this book gives us great insight into to Paul's personal life as he defended his conduct, character, and calling. This epistle was all, has also been the target of critical scholarship. Uh, the, the Bible has always been under attack. And this book is one of those that have been, has been under attack. And they argue that the first nine chapters seem like... Uh, they, they're one thing, and then the, the next uh, uh, chapters, the chapters that close the book from 10 through 13, are completely different, just uh, altogether all different. So it has been suggested that chapters 10 to 13 are part of a letter that's now lost. We call it Second Corinthians. It's actually, actually, I believe that uh, there were four letters. Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians to a letter that he wrote to them that we don't have. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote a a third letter to them that he sent by Titus uh, that's uh, that's described here. He said in in chapter 2 verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. And so then he writes this fourth letter to them that we have in our Bible as 2 Corinthians. 
And I think the best answer for this apparent disunity in this letter is that the first nine chapters, Paul is addressing the repentant majority. And in the last chapters, he is appealing to the rebellious minority. So yes, there is a difference in the tone. And we'll, I think we'll see that. Second Corinthians here was probably written during his third missionary journey, around 56 or 57. It's probably the most autobiographical of his letters. The, the, the last section is filled with irony and sarcasm. The so-called fool's speech from chapter 11, verse 16 through chapter 12, verse 13 is a masterful mocking of some who were preoccupied with power and spectacular spiritual gifts. Jesus has called us into His kingdom of peace that has not yet won. And this is the point. We struggle. And we'll continue to struggle. And thus we are called to share the sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. And Jesus warned, In the world you will have tribulation. Philipsis. That's, Paul uses that very word here in chapter 1. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Paul also wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not warring according to the flesh. This is in chapter 10. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's our problem. We have, we're, we're in a battle against the strongholds in our own minds and in the minds and hearts of others. So it's no mystery that trials, troubles, tribulation await all the saints who enter upon their heavenly journey. Jesus is not a deceiver. We can expect suffering. But we can also expect the consolation that comes with the suffering. And that's just the point of this. So let's notice then, that first of all, the character of the Comforter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It's interesting Paul begins this letter not like he does most letters. The only the, a similar letter would be the letter to the Ephesians where we read there in Ephesians 1, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The difference here between Ephesians and Corinthians is Ephesians is a general letter. In fact, uh, the, the name Ephesians has been attached to us, but it was probably a circular letter to the churches in that vicinity rather than just a specific church, Ephesus. And so it was written to the saints in Asia rather than a specific letter to the church. But this is to the church of God. That is at Corinth. So it's interesting that Paul here 
begins this letter in this way. He doesn't, he's not like the first one where he addresses the saints. But here he begins with a blessing to God. So beginning this letter in this way shows us that Paul is not letting his detractors in Corinth force him into questioning or doubting his ministry among them. Rather, he's letting them know that God is his focus. As we need to keep in mind. And though, so the opening remarks then acknowledging all that he suffered was part of God's plan for enabling true success in their spiritual walk. What Paul, Paul was telling them, I'm not suffering because I have something personal, although I'm sure that he benefited personally from it, but he's telling them, everything I have suffered and am suffering is for your benefit. It's for you. Because God desires your success, which He guarantees. Those who fall away from Christ are not Christ's. For Christ preserves His own. So now Paul was directing our attention to the Father. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father who oversees all. Who directs all. Who directed the incarnation and work of Jesus Christ. Who did not spare His own Son. But gave Him up for us all. So then Paul says, How shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? Romans chapter 8 verse 32. Now God was directing Paul's work among the churches. The fruit... Of the Son's sacrifice are the churches of Jesus Christ. And oh, we, how we need to understand that it is by the will of God. Notice Paul says, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. And how we need to turn our attention away from our own problems to the sovereign overseer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes this sovereign overseer under two heads. Number one, he's the father of mercies. This is an old word. It's an old word in the Greek language and it refers to pity. To have pity. It's, uh, and that pity is based upon compassionate feelings. When we see somebody suffering and our, our heart goes out to them and we have pity on them we have feel compassion toward them that's the what that's what mercies is all about here to the lord our god belong mercy and forgiveness is what daniel said in daniel chapter 9 verse 9 and the term here is is translated compassionate hearts in in colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And it's on this truth then that the apostle appeals to the saints that are in, in Rome 
in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you by the mercies, the, by the compassionate pity of our God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or which is your latreia, your service of worship. Jesus taught that his followers should be merciful, that is, have compassion and pity, even as your Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. To be kind to the needy. As Isaiah cried, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Isaiah 14 verse 1. If we're going to be like God, His likeness consists of a compassionate heart. Do we have such a heart? Compassionate pity? But then He's also referred to here as the God of all comfort. This is a, an interesting word, this word comfort. Para, para, it comes from parakalao. Para is, means with and Kalesis means alongside. In other words, to call to one side. Uh, it's used of the Lord Jesus, I mean of the Holy Spirit of God. He is our comforter. So we read this word comfort, and comfort we think of lug, kind of a luxurious bed and nice things and it's uh, we, we can sit in it and feel comfortable and so forth that's not what it's referring to here what it's referring to is what a, is what a lawyer is supposed to do he's supposed to be a, an expert in the law so we call for the lawyer to come to our side to help us see our way through some legal mess and here the word comfort the god of all comfort means God is the one who understands and knows what we're going through and He's called alongside. He comes to our aid to help us through it. You see that? That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. To dwell in us, to help us through our trials and our tribulations. Tribulation, the tribulation of believers, the thalipsis. Paul uses this term, thalipsis. And it's not inconsistent with God's mercy and should not cause any to doubt His mercy. He's the God of all comfort. The one who imparts the only true and perfect comfort in every instance, according to Psalm 146, verses 5 and 8. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation or deliverance. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. That's always impressed me, that God is often referred to as the God of Jacob. Who is Jacob? He's the heel grabber. He's the one who struggles and struggles until the Lord brought him to the brook Jabbok. And the angel appears to him, which I believe was a, an appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And now the heel grabber is forced to grab this angel. 
He holds on to him tightly and wrestles with him all night till the breaking of the day. What is that? He's, he has abandoned himself. Jacob has said, I'm through. I need you. I will not let you go till you bless me. And the Lord says, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. He'll grab her. No more. What? No more. You should be called Israel. Israel. See, here's the change. So here's the God of Jacob, who whose hope is in the Lord is God. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Then in James chapter 5 and verse 11 we read, Consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Here's another. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, the emphasis here is on his deity. Comfort flows from his piety, uh, excuse me, his pity, and is experienced when he pities us. But this comfort is supernatural in its nature. God is able to deliver us from evil. And he is providentially Managing all of our circumstances and coming alongside of us to aid us in the midst of our philipsis, our pressure, our trouble, our suffering. So the reason here that Paul presents God's pity and comfort is to inform his readers that God's comfort is in order for them, and here's the point, and notice this, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, and here's a purpose clause, we may be able to come alongside those who are in any philipsis, suffering, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. Do you understand that? God puts you through trouble. So that he can come alongside to aid you in that trouble. So that then you will turn around and come alongside those who are suffering around you. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. See, this ellipsis, this affliction is the gracious gift of God that teaches believers not to live according to the flesh not to depend on the flesh not to find help in the flesh not to believe that we can deliver ourselves from our problems for in chapter 10 again verse verses 3 to Six, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not warring. Notice, waging war. We're in a battle. 
We're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We walk in the flesh, but we are not to be controlled by the flesh. And that's what Romans chapter 8 teaches us. So now there's a purpose clause. It's that purpose clause in here in verse 14. So that you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And it, that informs us that to follow Christ and obey Him means that we give ourselves to others. That is what loving one another means. For in verse 5 it says, We shared abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so that through Christ we may share in comfort too. Whoa. So second of all, then we see the consolation of the suffering, and that's from verses 5 to 7. Here Paul states that the fact that believers will suffer as Christ did. However, Christ's sufferings, pathema, pathema, and which means to suffer misfortune, calamity, evil, and affliction, are not to be understood as having any redemptive quality. Christ suffered redemptively, but his sufferings are the same kinds of sufferings that we suffer, but ours are not redemptive. His were. But in our suffering, we're rather identifying ourselves with Christ in his life and mission. We suffer in the conveyance of his redemptive suffering. See the difference? He suffered redemptively so that we could be redeemed, but then we suffer with Christ so that in that his redemptive suffering may be brought to others. That's what preaching the gospel is about. We're the children of God, and if children and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, he says, and here's the thing, this notice this, Paul says. We suffer with him. And here is here is one of those combined Greek words, sum pacho, uh, which means to, to with suffer, to suffer with, to feel pain together in like manner with another. With him, says, to, that we provide and we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. What's Paul telling us there? He's telling us that one of the clear signs and evidences of our being a true Christian is our suffering. If we live our spiritual life free from suffering, we are not Christians. We don't belong to Him. And when trials and tribulations and difficulties come into our lives, 
what do they do? They, they take us away from ourselves and put us on to Jesus, who is our comforter. So Jesus was despised and rejected, suffering the hatred and the abuse of the world, so those who follow him will also suffer the same kinds of abuse. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And then in John 15, 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love his, you as his own, his own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We don't belong to the world anymore. First Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But rejoice in so far as you suffer Christ's sufferings. You share Christ's sufferings, excuse me. You share Christ's sufferings that you may be may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Count it a joy because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So now the purpose of our suffering then is stated in verse 6. If, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation or deliverance. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort that is at work in the, the patient endurance of the same sufferings that we also suffer. I'm, I'm quoting there from the... From the uh, Lexham, English Bible there from Lagos. Here is a great illustration of the church as a community of consolation. When one suffers, all suffer, or when one is comforted, all are comforted. The common, the common uh, view held by so many is that suffering is a kind of karma, a deserved retribution for wrongdoing. The book of Job illustrates that problem. Job suffered. His friends worked to get him to confess his sins to relieve his suffering. Good friends. You got something wrong. You done, you've done something wrong, Job. Just confess it and you'll, you'll be delivered. And Job knew that he had done nothing wrong. So what is as a consequence of his sufferings? Therefore, he turned to complain to God. Isn't that what we do? Boy, the Lord brought me up short about that too. Are you complaining? Mm. Complaining. Ooh. No, our suffering is not karma. <laughs> it's not a deserved retribution for wrongdoing. And we, we, we must never question God's goodness. Paul's opponents in Corinth and may have assumed that his suffering negated his claim of apostleship. 
Also seeing that the suffering was a sign of weakness and divine judgment. Paul reminds the church that his sufferings were brought on because of the gospel which displayed the power of God. So in chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, the flesh, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Romans 8, 28 informs us that all things, including suffering, work together for good, that is, for the ultimate usefulness for those who are called according to His purpose. And I think the best illustration of this is Joseph in the book of Genesis who was rejected by his own brothers and sold off into slavery. And he went in uh, there and falsely accused and wound up in prison. But then when, his, when he finally meets up his, with his brothers together, to, again, he comforts them. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yeah. God put him through this awful suffering to get him into Egypt and then brought him into a position of power and authority so that he could show compassion upon many and save their lives. And this is what Paul was now telling the church there at Corinth, be the Corinthian believers like Joseph. God was working good in the kingdom through Paul's experience. So then the encouragement of the suffering is that God will fulfill His purpose in each of His own. So verse 7, our hope for you, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, now he's writing to the repentant majority here, that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Hope refers to a confident expectation of deliverance. It indicates a firm trust that God will fulfill His promises in accomplishing His purposes. We may not, indeed, probably will not understand fully all of what God is doing in our times and in our suffering. But we can rest assured that He is sovereign that his, in His goodness and purpose, and that is hope. Paul sums it up there in Titus chapter 2, these principles. For he says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, deliverance for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of, our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So then, let me close this by emphasizing here the necessity of prayer in it. it it's interesting how the Apostle Paul then turns it to himself then in verses 8 through 11. I'm not going to spend so much time here. 
He said, we do not want you ignorant, brethren, of the affliction that we, are, we experienced in Asia. Not just in Corinth, but we've experienced the same thing here in Asia. And he's at Ephesus. He's in the church of Ephesus there. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. If you come to that place, think, read, just read that. Yeah, we even thought we had the sentence of death on ourselves. But what, what is his confidence? Notice in verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us yet again. He's done it in the past. He will do it again. But, and here's a, here's a very important truth. Paul's comfort lay in God's faithfulness, but he also introduces here the importance of prayer. You also must help us by prayer. Verse 11. Well, I'm trusting the Lord, but I'm trusting the Lord working in you too. And how's the Lord going to work in you when it comes to uh, your relationship to me? When you pray for me. How important is prayer? And prayer, a prayer meeting in a local church is the least attended meeting in the church because people don't believe it. They do not believe it. But this is what Paul says. You also must help us by prayer so that Many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Wow. That's a powerful testimony. So what are the lessons here? There's three things. Just three things very briefly. Number one, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering. Until we are present with the Lord, we will suffer. As we pointed out there from First Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we need to look out for each other. We are reminded here of, that God puts us in these difficult situations so that we can receive comfort from Him and turn to then comfort those who are suffering around us. And then thirdly, we need to learn how to pray for one another. Father, thank you for Paul's testimony here in the scripture that's before us. Oh, we so often get wrapped up in ourselves, we forget that you are sovereign in all things and that you are working out all things for your glory. We ask, Father, for you to teach us these truths. And remind us that when we go through difficulties and we, we want to throw up our hands, like the discouraging news there from the, 
the uh, Southern Baptist Fellowship there concerning that building there. Lord, we we ask, Lord, why? But Lord, we know that you are going to do a great work and you're going to deliver them. And you're going to, in that deliverance, show the, your greatness to many others in the process. And we look to you here too and trust you and believe you. And we thank you for what you're going to teach us as we continue in this book. In Jesus' name, amen.